over the last two weeks, we've heard about marriage from 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And this morning, as we finish chapter 7, the topic is still marriage, but now Paul is speaking to those who aren't married. And as he does, he encourages all of us, single or married, to think bigger and aim higher. You'll find our passage on page 1149, or in the larger print Bibles, page 1777. First Corinthians 7, verses 25 to 40. Now, about virgins, I have no command from the Lord, but I give a judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Because of the present crisis, I think it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you pledged to a woman? Do not seek to be released. Are you free from such a commitment? Do not look for a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life, and I want to spare you this. What I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them. For this world in its present form is passing away. I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife. And his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I am saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone is worried that he might not be acting honorably towards the virgin he is engaged to, and if his passions are too strong and he feels he ought to marry, he should do as he wants. He is not sinning. They should get married. But the man who has settled the matter in his own mind, who is under no compulsion, but has control over his own will and who has made up his mind not to marry the virgin, this man also does the right thing. So then he who marries the virgin does right, but he who does not marry her does better. A woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes, but she must belong to the Lord. In my judgment, she is happier if she stays as she is. And I think that I, too, have the Spirit of God. This is God's Word. And the temptation at this point is for those who are married to tune out, to 
because this doesn't seem to have much to say to you. But there's an equal temptation for those who are single to tune out. Because this passage doesn't seem to be saying what you'd like it to say. But this passage really is for all of us. Because as Paul speaks to the issue of singleness, he's challenging all of us to think bigger and aim higher. Whatever our marital status is. These verses fall into two main sections. The first section is verses 25 to 31. And these verses tell us, this world is not forever. So don't live as if it is. That's where these verses are going to take us. That's the punchline of this section. But that is not where we start. We start with a situation that seems a bit obscure to us. Have another look at verse 25. Now, about virgins, I have no command from the Lord, but I give a judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Right at the beginning of chapter 7, Paul indicated he was going to respond now to issues the Corinthians had raised in a letter to him. And in chapter 7, verse 1, he said, Now for the matters you wrote about. Then Paul went on to speak at length to married people. And apparently verse 25 is responding to another issue the Corinthians have asked about. Single people and whether they should marry. Paul uses the word virgins to indicate he has in mind young unmarried women as opposed to widows. And he then he, he announces he has no command for the Corinthians. First, he says, I have no command from the Lord, meaning during his ministry on earth, Jesus didn't give any orders about this. But we've seen earlier in the chapter, Paul is not operating on the basis that all he can do is repeat what Jesus said on earth. Before the risen Jesus returned to heaven, he promised that through his Holy Spirit, he would guide the writers of the New Testament so that their instruction to the church would come with Jesus' authority. So Paul knows he does have authority to give binding commands to the church. And he will do that at certain points in this passage. But he refuses to do that when it comes to this matter of whether single people should marry. He will give clear instructions on other things, but not on this. Instead, he's very careful to make a distinction. I'm not giving a command on this, he says. Instead, I will give you my opinion or my viewpoint. The NIV says my judgment. That translation might be just a little bit too strong. Considering how often Paul says in this passage, if you choose to act differently from what I'm saying, you are not sinning. He will say that four or five times before this passage is over. So here he is giving counsel. But he is careful to add, this is good counsel. He gives it as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. But he leaves the single members of the church free to weigh things up and make their own decision about whether to marry. So then what is his counsel to those who are single? Well, in verse 26, he says, 
because of the present crisis, I think that it is good for a man to remain as he is. What does he mean by the present crisis? Well, it's impossible for us to be sure what it is. It would have been so obvious to the Corinthians that Paul doesn't need to spell it out here. Some commentators have wondered if it was a situation of persecution they were facing. But there doesn't seem to be any evidence for that, not in Corinth at this time. We do know, however, that there were grain shortages in the area around this time. And those grain shortages led to social unrest. That was due both to the fear of famine and then the actual impact of the shortages. So that is most likely what Paul means when he talks about the present crisis. But whatever the specifics, what Paul is telling us is that his counsel here is related to a situation of emergency. He's taking into account the instability and the uncertainty that come with emergency situations. And his counsel is, don't enter into big life changes in the midst of that. Specifically here, don't get married. But you'll notice Paul doesn't say, if you're engaged, break off the engagement. No, in verse 27 he says, if you're pledged to someone, don't break that off. Don't seek to be released. And that underlines the fact that this is counsel for a crisis. Paul is leaving the door open for them to marry when the crisis is over. But while that's going on, he advises, don't jump into marriage. It's easy to see how a potential famine plus social unrest would make it much more difficult to provide for a new wife. So Paul says to those who aren't engaged, don't go looking for a wife. But if you do, and if those of you who are engaged go ahead and get married, you will not be sinning. Now, I would guess all of that makes good sense to us. But we might wonder how it has any relevance to us. If we were living in the late 1930s, maybe, on the eve of a world war, then the relevance would probably be obvious. But we're not facing any significant crisis today. And for all the hype around Brexit, I'm not sure that it quite counts. But what Paul says next makes this relevant for us. Remember, Paul is responding to a question he's been asked, but even as he answers that specific question, he wants these Christians to learn a wider principle for their lives. It's the principle of setting our priorities and making our decisions in light of our circumstances. So in verses 29 to 31, Paul widens this way, way beyond those who are single. He moves from a short-term crisis to consider now a long-term reality. It's there at the end of verse 31. This world in its present form is passing away. Grain shortages will come and they'll pass. Wars will begin and they'll end. Natural disasters will create havoc 
and then life will be rebuilt. But this present world in its entirety is on a countdown to destruction. Second Peter says, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. Now the Bible tells us that destruction will lead to the renewal of all things. This present heaven and earth will be made new. But their present form will pass away. The hierarchies of this present world, the things it values, its systems of reward, its high places of power, all of that will be gone one day. And along with it, so many of the things that seem oh so important right now will become meaningless. And so Paul says to us, let the future give you the proper perspective on the present. It's pretty obvious to us that current crises and emergencies should impact the way we live. We're foolish if we don't take big upheavals into account. And we understand about making decisions with the future in mind. So then how much more should we live and make decisions in light of the biggest future event? The passing away of this world in its present form. Shouldn't that impact our lives and decisions more than anything else? So then, verse 29, what I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them. The time is short does not mean Paul assumed Jesus would come back in his lifetime necessarily. But it does mean Jesus' return is to be expected at all times. According to the New Testament, since Jesus ascended back to heaven, we have been living in the last days. We are in the final stretch of history. The next great event on God's calendar is the end of this present world. And so we must factor that in to the way we live. We have to live in light of Christ's return. Many of the things that seem so pressing and important to us right now are in fact fragile and passing. So much that seems of great significance now actually has no long-term significance. And so we must not build our lives on those things. We must not let them dictate the priorities of our lives. So in these verses, Paul is not condemning marriage. He's not condemning mourning or rejoicing or possessions or business. He's not calling us to swear off all of that 
He's not calling us to be emotionless stoics. Nor is he suggesting we should sell everything we have and go live on a mountain somewhere looking up at the sky all day. No, if you read through Paul's letters, you'll find that Paul himself did plenty of mourning. He did plenty of rejoicing. He was not an emotionally inhibited guy. And he's not calling us to be like that. In his letters, you'll also discover Paul working to earn a living. You'll find him making plans and encouraging others to make plans. Earlier in this chapter, he told married couples not to neglect each other, to work at their marriage. So what is Paul saying here? He's simply saying this world is not forever. So don't live as if it is. Get the right perspective on the things of this world. Put them in their proper place. Give them the attention they deserve, but not more than they deserve. Don't center your life on those things. Don't build your life on them. And when you face setbacks, Go ahead and admit the sadness and the frustration of that. By all means, mourn your losses. But don't act as if that setback or that loss is the last word. The same with achievements and awards. Celebrate them, of course. But don't expect the glory of those things to last. Don't expect those accolades to fulfill you. And don't be tricked into thinking your possessions are going to last forever. Don't set your heart on them. Don't let them possess you. Like Gollum in Lord of the Rings, controlled by his precious ring. He thought that he owned the ring, but it owned him. His existence was all bound up with it, that little shiny thing. When he had it, he stroked it, he cooed over it. And when he lost it, he wailed, he fumed, and he grasped after it. Or if you like slightly older stories, what about Silas Marner, if you know about him? He had a bag of gold hidden under the floor, and he spent his free time taking that out and counting it, lovingly stroking the coins. That bag of gold mastered him. And you and I can get like that with stuff, nice things, to the point where our world revolves around improving the house or upgrading the car and then preserving the car in the house. Paul says, as you do business, after you go after your qualifications, after you plan for your retirement, as you do all of that, don't become obsessed with those things. That will just divert you from the real business of life. So learn to sit loosely with this world's rewards 
and with its losses. Don't start believing those things have ultimate importance. That is not just what we're commanded to do. It's the only way of life that makes sense. And you see that. One writer says, the uncertainty of the world should take our hearts from the love of it. The uncertainty of the world should take our hearts from the love of it. Why live for something that's going to pass away? Instead, let the future give you the proper perspective on the present. As Christian parents, are we letting the future determine our perspective on our children's lives? Do our hopes and prayers for them revolve around them having friends and getting good results and a good income at the end of that? Or do those things take their proper secondary place in our hopes and prayers for them? Behind our prayers and hopes for their salvation. And their commitment to live for eternal things. I knew a pastor who loved to support and promote missionary work abroad. But when his own daughter applied to go to Africa, he flipped out. What about her career? As parents, how would you or I react in that kind of situation? Our reaction to our kids' decisions tells us a lot about our own perspective. All of that came from a question about whether single people should get married. And having put that question now into a much wider context beyond the present crisis, into the permanent reality that this world is going to end, now Paul returns to the original question and he uses it to teach another wider principle. In verses 32 to 40, he says, Marriage is not greater than God, so don't live as if it is. Look at verse 32. I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife. And his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I am saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. find these verses to be unreasonable, if we feel like they're over the top, that may be a sign we think marriage is greater than God. But the real business of life is not to find a spouse. It's to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. 
when God gave his greatest commandment to Old Testament Israel, he did not say to Israel, find a spouse, O Israel. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. And when Jesus was asked about the greatest commandment, he did not change it to find a spouse. He repeated the thing about loving God. Now the reality is, as we look at these verses, not every unmarried person is wholeheartedly devoted to God. It's quite possible to be single and very, very selfish. And earlier in the chapter, Paul pointed out it is possible to be single and to be so enslaved to lust that your devotion to God is just about out the window. On the other hand, many, many married couples use their marriage to serve God in outstanding ways, together. Paul worked closely with at least one married couple who were like that, Priscilla and Aquila. Paul also worked closely with an apparently single man called Demas, who ended up deserting Paul because, Paul says, he loved this world. So, we know Paul does not have a dismal view of marriage, nor does he have an idealized view of singleness. But here, as he speaks to single people, he wants them to move away from living for marriage and get them living for God. That's what this is about. Marriage is a good gift. It's an honorable state to be in, and the Bible celebrates it. But the Bible does not allow us to make marriage our highest aspiration. Our highest aspiration has to be undivided devotion to the Lord. It has to be that way because only the Lord can satisfy our deepest needs. Looking to anyone else for that can only end in disappointment for us. And of course, we all know that in theory, right? We agree with it in theory. But maybe some of us claim to know it and agree with it while we carry right on idolizing marriage and desperately grasping after marriage and believing deep down that we are incomplete without marriage and that we'll worry about living for God after we've sorted out the life and death issue of finding ourselves a spouse. Isn't that what leads us to pursue romantic relationships with non-Christians? When we do that, aren't we showing we are more devoted to marriage than we are to God? That we want marriage more than we want God? Christian parents, what is more pressing for us? That our sons and daughters find life partners 
or that they live a life of devotion to God? Again, we know the right answer. So which of those issues preoccupies us most? Which of those issues keeps us awake at night the most? We cannot dictate our children's priorities. Of course we can't. But what are my priorities? As a parent, what are yours? What would fill me and you with the greatest joy? News of a wedding day for our son or daughter? Or news that in some major life decision they had put God first? Paul takes pains to stress here. He's not trying to enforce singleness. Look at verse 35. He says, I'm not saying this to restrict you. Literally, not to put a noose around your neck. I'm not trying to rope you all into singleness, he says. But I do want to put a new question at the top of your list of big questions. Before asking, should I marry this person, the more significant question is, will this person help or hinder my devotion to the Lord? Marriage to the right person can open up significant new opportunities to serve God. Marriage to the wrong person can close down many opportunities to serve God. So the bigger principle here is this. Make life choices that will assist your devotion to God. Of course, if we get married, we cannot know for sure how things will turn out for us. We may have the very best of intentions, and we may be convinced the other person does too. Only to find out later their commitment to Christ was not what we thought. That can happen. It does happen. But that is very different from grabbing a partner and heading for the altar determined that we're going to worry later about their spiritual commitment. And this applies to much more than just marriage. Whether we're making choices about a spouse or about a career, or a move to any kind of new situation in our life, the most significant issue influencing our decision has to be as best as I can tell, will this assist my devotion to God or hinder my devotion to God? Will this pr promote godliness in my life or frustrate godliness? Last week we heard about serving God in whatever situation we find ourselves in. Here the message is, when you have choices to make, when there are options in front of you, choose what will help you serve God more faithfully. Don't put companionship at the top of your list of concerns, or money, or comfort, or social status. Think bigger than that. Aim higher than that. 
Put devotion to God at the top of your list. Then make your decision with that priority in mind. Which choice, which option will assist me most in my goal of devotion to the Lord? There's certainly plenty of other things that need to be considered as well. But this has to come first for all of us. We're foolish if it doesn't come first for us. Because the Lord is what we need most. We are wise when we make him our priority. Verses 36 to 38 are quite difficult to translate. The main question about them is, is Paul here talking to fathers about their unmarried daughters? Or is he talking to engaged men about their fiancés? There's a particular ambiguity in the language that makes it possible to translate those verses either way. And the NIV draws attention to that, you'll see, with a big footnote down at the bottom of the page. Again, Paul is giving counsel here to a specific situation that has been raised with him. So the Corinthians know what he's talking about very well. But actually, however we translate these verses, what is clear is that we're still dealing with the question to marry or not to marry. And again, with the present crisis still in mind, Paul repeats his advice for the emergency situation. Marry if you want. Don't marry if you don't want. And personally, I think under the circumstances, you're best not to. But either way, he says, you're not sinning. Just consider the decision well. Make up your mind with devotion to God as your top priority. So finally, Paul adds a note to widows in verses 39 to 40. You may remarry, of course, so long as you marry another believer. He must belong to the Lord. Last week, we saw how mixed marriages came about in the early church. Two unbelievers got married. Then one of them became a Christian. Paul is very understanding towards those particular situations. But he allows no leeway for someone who's already a Christian to go and marry an unbeliever. There's no way that decision would assist a Christian's devotion to God. And that is to be the goal of all a Christian's life decisions. In this passage, Paul does not claim singleness is better than marriage. But neither does he claim it is worse than marriage. The Bible celebrates marriage, and it also celebrates singleness put to use in God's service. And so we as a church ought to honor marriage and equally we ought to honor those who are single. We must not patronize them by implying that single people are living plan B for the Christian life. Paul and Jesus were single, and they did not view their lives as plan B. None of us will be married in heaven. 
and God does not view heaven as plan B. And to those who are single, how are you using your singleness? Are you using it to grasp desperately after marriage? And get better if that's not working out? Or are you using your singleness to pursue God and live for God? We'll close with some words from a single lady called Paige Benton. I long to be married. My younger sister got married two months ago. She now has an adoring husband, a beautiful home, a whirlpool bathtub, and all new kitchenware. Is God being any less good to me than he is to her? The answer is a resounding no. God will not be less good to me because God cannot be less good to me. It is a cosmic impossibility for God to shortchange any of his children. My identity is not found in my marital status, but in my redemptive status. I am one of the haves, not one of the have-nots. She goes on to say, if you're single and someone asks if you're in a relationship, your response should be that you are in dozens. No single should ever expect relational impoverishment by virtue of being single. We should covenant to love people, to initiate, to serve, to commit. It is a cosmic impossibility for God to require less of me in my relationships than he does of the mother of four next door. I want to be married. I pray to that end every day. I may meet someone and walk down the aisle in the next couple of years because God is so good to me. I may never have another date and die an old maid at 93 because God is so good to me. All of us are called to a life of devotion to God. Let's commit to make our choices with that goal in our mind. Let's commit to pursue devotion to God, even when our circumstances are not what we would prefer. And let's remember our present circumstances are only temporary. One day this earth in its present form will pass away. And so will many of the things we worry about and lose sleep over and fight for here and now. What will be left is the God who loved us and gave himself for us. If we have him, we have everything. 
And so our next two songs call us to live a life of hope and trust in our Redeemer. Rejoicing in hope, we wait for our King.